our studios in Washington. Here is ABC News correspondent Frank Reynolds. Good morning. At this hour, a select committee of the United States Senate is about to begin public hearings on something called Watergate. One year ago today, Watergate was just an address, a rather fancy, expensive address in this capital city. But now it has come to symbolize much more. The word crisis is perhaps too mild to apply to Watergate. President Nixon's White House has been shaken. Indeed, the entire executive branch of the government has been jolted by the continuing accusations and... Uh, Revelations, most of them, it uh, must be kept in mind, not yet proved. Seven men, only seven men, have been convicted for their part in the burglary. We see you now. We see now Senator Sam Irvin, who is the chairman of the uh, select committee, engaging in some banter there with the photographers who are clustered all about him. Senator Irvin will be the man wielding the gavel during these uh, hearings, and he is about to do that right now. Senator Irvin has called these hearings the most important investigation ever entrusted to the Congress. He is well known as perhaps the foremost authority on the Constitution in the United States Senate, the former judge. There goes the gavel and the Watergate hearings are underway. Season 2, Episode 12, Blowing the Roof Off. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction of this episode is from May 17, 1973, the first hearing of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, 49 years ago this week. Those hearings, chaired by Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, would ultimately lead to the resignation of President Richard M. Nixon. Today, we turn to a different Select Committee in the lower House of Congress. And yet I expect that these proceedings will, in many ways, resonate and rhyme with the Watergate hearings. Those hearings changed the course of history and protected democracy in America. Democrats also won sweeping electoral victories in the wake of Watergate, picking up 49 seats in the House and five in the Senate, with thousands of down-ballot victories at the state and local level all across the country. I'm trying to put out these episodes more regularly in the run-up to the public hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack that began on June 9th. In the main segment of this episode, I will be reviewing the kinds of questions that I believe will be answered in these public hearings. I take Representative Raskin seriously when he makes the claim that these hearings will, quote, blow the roof off the House. And so I think I will outline the areas where the committee hearings are going to explore in order to get the truth out about January 6th and thereby preserve electoral democracy in the United States. At the end of the episode, I'm going to lay out what we know based on public reports regarding testimony of witnesses subpoenaed by the Select Committee. This is a massive criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. It doesn't begin on January 6th, it begins in the fall of 2020 and extends after that and we're going to see, I think, the committee acting in tandem with the Department of Justice to achieve the end of preserving electoral democracy in America. It's been a little more than a week since the last episode, and once again, as always, it's time to turn to the numbers, as always sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 797 individuals charged, an increase of six since the last episode. There have been a total of 378 indictments, 
holding steady for the fourth episode in a row. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always. One acquittal. 299 convictions. An increase of 40 since the last episode. Uh, it seems quite likely that even as I'm speaking, that number is probably changing. So this episode pr probably marks the 300th conviction since the capital insurrection began. 132 sentences, an increase of 7 since the last episode. So again, we have seen a massive increase in the number of convictions. 40 in a week, another new record, mainly for parading defendants, but also some notable felony defendants. At the same time, the number of indictments has stalled out for, at 378 for a month now, which, again, as I've mentioned before, is really odd. It seems to me to go beyond the sort of natural ebb and flow of uh, cases. Um, could be that maybe the AUSAs are really prioritizing making plea deals. There's a lot of action with regard to the convictions, not so much with indictments, and there are complicated questions with regard to well, Speedy Trial Act tolling and all kinds of work resource, work process efforts that they presumably, hopefully, are, are keeping in mind. Um, could have something to do with the D.C. court docket. So it's really strange. Don't have any explanation for it. It is unprecedented. Uh, just we are seeing an awful lot of plea deals being made across the board in parading cases, in felony cases, in serious assault cases, and yet no increase in indictments. So there's this whole backlog of people who have been charged but not yet indicted. Uh, which is when Speedy Trial Act tolling begins. I believe it's 70 days. If said trial date within 70 days of that. Although the courts have various workarounds for that process. Um, as normal, I will highlight uh, uh, the case of a particular inmate. Although as we are moving toward the public hearings, I will be focusing more and more on the inner circle surrounding Trump and what we expect to learn at the, com the committee hearings themselves, as opposed to the, the individual members of the mob. I believe that the investigations have shifted. We have reached a turning point where we are looking more at uh, VIPs leading toward the center of the web of the seditious conspiracy to defraud the United States by keeping Donald Trump in office. The inmate that I'm going to spotlight this week is Kyle Young, 38, of Redfield, Iowa. And I'm spotlighting him uh, because he has pleaded guilty to one count. Young was originally charged in a 10-count indictment that included co-defendants Albuquerque Head of Kingsport, Tennessee, and Thomas Civic of Buffalo, New York. Head, who I've mentioned before as being someone who is noteworthy for having a long criminal history, also accepted a plea deal pleading guilty to one count of AFO, uh, which is, is also the count that Young pleaded to. So again, 10 counts in the indictment. They're both pleading to only one felony charge. It's a very serious felony charge, assault on a federal officer. Nonetheless, um, it is, you know, in a sense, rather, rather generous, all, you know, considering the circumstances. So Young pleaded guilty on May 5th, 
and uh, Head pleaded guilty on May 6th, which leaves Civic all by himself. Uh, you may remember Civic as a man who stole Michael Fanon's badge and buried it in his backyard. So we'll see if Civic goes to trial, um, but the other two co-defendants in this case have pleaded. The facts are not on his side. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. But obviously, again, I, I'm kind of burying the lead here, right? So, yes, Young is involved in the assault on Michael Fanon. Young is one of those defendants who uh, basically dragged him out of the Lower West Terrace Tunnel during some of the most serious fighting and um, you know, basically attacked Officer Fanon. Now, th this brutal attack on Officer Fanon is... One of the reasons why, actually, why I, I started this podcast to begin with, it was so cowardly and vicious, uh, you know, but couldn't get it out of my head. And Kyle Young is one of the thugs who took part in that attack, and I no longer have to use the word allegedly in this context. Also, in addition to those three uh, men, of course, there's also Danny Rodriguez, right, who's charged separately for allegedly teasing Fanon multiple times. You're probably familiar with the video. Uh, he is tasing Fanon in the back of the neck uh, so badly that it, it burned his skin and caused him to have a, a cardiac event on site. Very serious. Uh, if you look at the, the, the documents, uh, you know, Fanon went to the hospital. There's this whole black space, uh, presumably regarding Fanon's medical condition. Uh, he was, he was a, in a bad way as a result of the attack. Now, Rodriguez has confessed. Um, but, you know, and his defense hasn't been able to exclude that confession. So, you know, I mean, the, the outcome in Danny Rodriguez's case probably isn't really in doubt. Now, Young was assigned the hashtag AscendDad by volunteer online open source, source intelligence sleuths uh, because he was wearing a, a Ascend Sportswear branded hat, and he also brought his 16-year-old son with him to the Capitol. Young also brought a strobe light with him to the attack, which really shows some premeditation. Um, he deployed that light at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel in an effort to disorient police during the fighting. Young took part in the brutal fighting while his son stood merely feet away from the battle, uh, who was he was left, like, in the custody of other, you know, members of this violent mob. So, you know, I mean, I don't need to rehash the whole thing. Uh, I mean, you, you've probably seen it. Young was one of the men who dragged Fanon out into the ravening mob. Uh, and he, in, in the charging documents, it alleges what it happened. You can see it on video if you really want to go rewatch the, the that. Um, you know, he's restraining... Fanon's left arm, they're, they're basically holding Fanon uh, and restraining him. And, you know, as a consequence, uh, that's, that becomes an element of the crime, which I'll talk about in a moment. So, Young was not charged with, with child endangerment, uh, which, you know, I mean, you bring your kid to this thing, I mean, he could have left him somewhere, but instead he's like, he's right there. I mean, right there, this kid, you know, the Lower West Tunnel, uh, Terrace Tunnel, you know, while his dad is, is fighting with police. Uh, you know, so in my mind, such a, such a great gift to Kyle Young here. Uh, to, you know, I don't know if anything, I mean, that, that 
you know, he has to offer the government in exchange. Now, like many other violent defenders of capital, Young has a substantial criminal history, with two convictions for possession of a controlled substance and one for felon in possession of a firearm. So with his criminal history and the fact that his crimes were committed against a federal officer and involved restraining his victim and resulted in serious bodily injury, Young faces 63 to 78 months, according to federal sentencing guidelines. Um, he could face even more time. and He has to get a, a two-point reduction for accepting responsibility. He's probably going to get that, but if, if for some reason he doesn't, uh, he'll get 77 to 96 months. But uh, as it stands, presumably 63 to 78 months. So a little over five years at a minimum for attacking a Metropolitan Police officer amidst the most brutal fighting on January 6th. He is a recidivist felon and just getting this absolute gift of pleading guilty to only one felony count in the most brutal and infamous attacks on January 6th. So, Young was arrested in April of 2021 and now awaits sentencing at the Northern Neck Regional Jail where he has been detained ever since his arrest. Now, for me, this plea is, is kind of a milestone along with Head and, you know, I mean, eventually, probably Rodriguez and Civic as well. Um, but it's also colored by, uh, I don't know, I, this is an outcome which, to my mind, doesn't really seem just. We've seen all these parading defendants, and this case, this particular assault, being as well-publicized and brutal as it was, I thought, well, this, there's going to be consequences, right? And then, you know, as you follow along, it's like, oh, man, these guys have a substantial criminal history. That's going to make a, a big difference here. And in the end, this officer winds up suffering a, a heart attack, and yet this one particular assailant is looking at a little over five years Probably a little bit less than that uh, with good time. I think it's like 45, 48 days. They go off per year. Um, relatively complicated. You know, I mean, it's not... It, good time isn't what it is in some other jurisdictions or perhaps even what it used to be uh, in the federal context. They absolutely, he's going to do almost all of the five years. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it seems a little generous to this defendant, given everything else about him, right? I mean, substantial criminal history, he restrained his victim, serious bodily injury, coordinating with other people, coming to D.C., prepared to engage in violence, uh, bringing that strobe light, which is an oddly particular thing to bring on, you know, on a bright day. You know, did he know he was going to be in a dark tunnel? I mean, very strange. Uh, he brought a child with him, and he threatened to take a police officer's weapon, Right? So, you know, these parading defendants, uh, they, they get the slap on the wrist outcome, you know. I mean, that's kind of understandable. They've been charged with four misdemeanors. They plead guilty to one. And, you know, they get something from 45 days in jail to nothing, to a probation or, or a fine, you know. Uh, so, yeah, all along, you know, I'd expected that the worst of the worst, these defendants, the ones facing serious felony charges, would do real time. I mean, so it depends. I mean, yes, five years is real time, even after good time. But still, for this particular defendant, in my opinion, it seems pretty lenient. Young, to me, yeah, he has no redeeming qualities. None. The facts are absolutely damning. And what's more, his case is being handled by Judge Amy Berman Jackson.
who is an Obama appointee, who has been strangely lenient toward these defendants. Um, I might, I, I do regularly, I, I sometimes live tweet, but I also will call in on the call-in lines. Sometimes I'm not in a position where I can live tweet the hearings, but I'm listening. And Amy Berman Jackson has this habit of giving really great lectures, right? She offers these really amazing, stern lectures to these defendants, uh, you know, and very, you know, she's condemning the behavior in very harsh terms, but then hands out sentences that are toward the lower end of the guidelines. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see in this, this case. I don't think the government is going to get anything useful out of Kyle Young. There's nothing about cooperation in his plea agreement. He's he just getting a, a gift. And to my mind, you know, personal plea to Amy Berman Jackson, she's not listening, Judge Jackson, but if you were listening, if ever there was a time for an upward departure, this is it. This is a candidate for an upward departure. Um, just to say, you know, I mean, three prior uh, felony, you know, nine points on his criminal, criminal record, crime of violence, just, you know, nothing redeeming about this guy. Hopefully they'll at least set his custody level such that he winds up doing pen time. Someplace with an active yard. That's what I would like to see. He's going to go someplace really crummy. Hopefully. Uh, you know, he's not a candidate for a camp. He's not a candidate uh, for a low. You know, I mean, best he could probably hope for is a medium federal penitentiary. At a minimum, Kyle Young needs to do his time at a federal penitentiary. Now I'm going to move on to the latest developments. Um, I'm not going to do all of the latest developments in this segment, you know, partly because some of them are directly relevant to the actual subject of this episode regarding what we can expect from the January 6th committee hearings, because they are examples of this drip, drip, drip that the committee is engaged in at this moment to kind of make the targets of the investigation sweat, but also to uh, provoke public interest, elicit public interest in the run-up to the public hearings beginning on June 9th. So, first thing is it's come to light in reporting from the New York Times that the Department of Justice has requested copies of transcripts of all interviews conducted by the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. The committee has, at this point, interviewed more than a thousand witnesses. So I guess the DOJ wants all that. The Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division at the DOJ, Kenneth Polite, strange name, uh, and Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, have formally requested these transcripts because they believe they may, quote, contain information relevant to a criminal investigation we are conducting, end quote. So I want to be clear here, that is the lead. The Department of Justice is now focusing on the central coup plotters, the people who've been at the center of the committee's investigation since the inception of the committee. That is, to my mind, the most newsworthy part of this story. After over a year prosecuting foot soldiers, the Department of Justice is now turning to the organizers and the plotters. Nonetheless, the part of the story that has made the biggest splash is this. The Select Committee has rebuffed the efforts of the Department of Justice to obtain transcripts of witness testimony. 
Chairman Benny Thompson said the following, quote, We can't give them full access to our product. That would be premature at this point because we haven't completed our old work, end quote. I think there's some confusion regarding this. Many people have seen this as an outright rejection of the Department of Justice by the committee, but that's not what it is. Thompson said work product, not transcripts. You can be assured that the lead uh, investigator and his team, Tim Heavey, former federal prosecutor, they've already drawn up many documents in preparation for the public hearings that are less than a month away, and they're not finished. That's what Thompson's saying they're not going to have access to. Those aren't ready for prime time. So people are focusing on the Department of Justice and their need to maintain the integrity of the process that is going to wind up in federal court, but the committee itself is working through its own process, and they have to safeguard the integrity of that process. So it's a hard no from Thompson and the rest of the committee when it comes to the drafts of the reports that are drawn up by Heafy and his team. But in the same article, and again, this has kind of been lost in the shuffle a little bit, the Times cites a source familiar with the matter as saying, quote, the transcripts were part of a negotiation between the committee and the Justice Department in which the panel was hoping the prosecutors would turn over evidence in exchange for the transcripts, end quote. We don't know what these negotiations entail. They could be broader ranging, much wider than what's presented here. For example, the, the committee has expressed frustration that the Department of Justice has not acted on contempt referrals for anyone not named Steve Bannon, uh, who faces trial in July. So the committee has things that the Department of Justice wants, and the Department of Justice has things that the committee wants. If you're the kind of person who interprets everything in the worst possible way, you can see this as a kind of pointless turf war. Part of why people have a hard time really understanding this story is that the committee is seen as being more active in the pursuit of the central plotters of the coup attempt than the Department of Justice. And there are certainly reasons to criticize the Department of Justice, although, you know, we've just hit 300 convictions. If you're coming from a place where you see the committee as the defenders of electoral democracy and the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland as bad actors, you're not taking the whole question seriously, you know, it, it's difficult to integrate what's happening right now into that narrative. But what I'd like to suggest is that it's normal when one branch of government is dealing with another branch uh, to engage in this kind of negotiation. There's a whole literature of political science on the strategic use of bargaining in order to achieve specific policy outcomes. Broadly speaking, the interests of the Department of Justice and the Select Committee are aligned, but that doesn't mean that they align perfectly. At the end of the day, I feel that the Committee and the Department of Justice will resolve the apparent conflict and arrive at a constructive information-sharing agreement. Again, as we've seen, there are grand juries operating in the effort to investigate the January 6th plot, and the news here is that the DOJ wants what the committee has in furtherance of that investigation. As I've mentioned before, it's possible that the committee will make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice at the conclusion of the public hearings. So this could just be setting the table for that process. Do we really think that Betty Thompson and the rest of the committee are going to withhold information that's useful to the Department of Justice in pursuit of criminal charges? I don't think so. 
And I think the logical conclusion of this kerfuffle is that you're going to have two parallel investigations merging and sharing information. So, uh, you know, if, for example, Alex Jones or Peter Navarro or Donald Trump are ultimately charged by the Department of Justice, I think the evidence that's been obtained by the Select Committee is going to figure in that. So, as it stands, Thompson has said that the Select Committee is, uh, you know, going to open up the, the information. They're going to be available uh, to the Department of Justice if they want to come to Congress to look at what the committee has. I, I see that, you know, kind of as a, as a feature, not as a bug, right? Um, you know, who's going to be there while the Department of Justice does that? I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. You know, our committee members, uh, Tim Heafy's team, uh, you know, are they going to be there? Uh, Thomas Wyndham, uh, who's been brought on uh, by the, the committee, are they all going to be there in the same room and review what they have? I don't necessarily think that that's a bad part of the process. As I've mentioned before, the focus of the government's case has shifted, and it encompasses not only the attack on the Capitol, but also the fraudulent elector scheme, the fake voter fraud disinformation scheme, the potential use of the military to overturn the election, and all the efforts to keep Donald Trump in office despite his loss in the 2020 presidential election. So you have Thomas Wyndham, who's in charge of that entire effort, building that broader case. I don't think this is Mueller part due. There's a lot of there there. And the Department of Justice is getting up to speed to get ready for the next steps that need to be taken. Now, I refer you again to the strangeness of the fact that uh, the indictment numbers in the capital insurrection cases uh, have held steady while you know plea bargains are coming in faster than ever. So, you know, you can infer from that what you will. I think the evidence shows they're clearing the decks. They're working on something big, despite the finite resources at their disposal. I don't mean to sound like some, some blue anon account here, right? But, you know, there's, there's evidence to suggest that they are changing their work process. And uh, for some reason, unknown reason, you know, I think it, it may be because they're working on something else. And so my hope is that perhaps they anticipate criminal referrals at some point, perhaps at the conclusion of the public hearings, from the House Select Committee. All right, let's move on to the topic of the public hearings beginning on June 9th. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast, the first thing that you ought to realize in order to sort of contextualize the impact of the upcoming public hearings is this. You know far more than the average American does about what happened in the run-up to January 6th and thereafter than the average citizen. It's very difficult to overstate the extent to which the average person in the United States doesn't follow politics closely. That's in the literature in public, of public opinion and political science from the very beginning. I refer you to Philip Converse. Uh, his work, you know, to my mind, is, is really remains definitive to this day, you know, Basically, it shows that most Americans don't follow politics as closely as we would like and oftentimes have a, a, a level of ignorance regarding civics that many people would find shocking. So for the vast majority of Americans, the January 6th attack was something that happened last year. They paid attention to it for a few weeks. 
and then they stopped. They haven't followed the development of cases. They haven't followed the changing government theory of the case. They haven't followed the evidence presented in court and then the charging dockets, any of it. Um, the vast majority of people in this country are completely innocent of the knowledge of such things. They moved on. Right now, they're following the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case. The public attention span is very limited. And I might add, this, this is even true of people who might, in some sense, be considered to be elite, right? And I mean that in terms of uh, political or media elites, right? So, for example, you, you still see articles to this very day appearing in mainstream media referencing the events of January 6th as the Capitol Riots. I don't think I've ever used that term here on this podcast. The idea of a Capitol Riot implies spontaneity. This was clearly a pre-planned attack led by Republican political elites with the goal of keeping Donald Trump in office. It wasn't a spontaneous outpouring of rage uh, in result, you know, replied to some stimulus, but rather a planned, coordinated assault on electoral democracy in the United States of America. And so as such, the, the term capital riot is a complete misnomer, but nonetheless the mainstream press, or at least parts of it, have failed to pick up on even this rather basic and essential fact. Even though the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack has explicitly called itself you know, the January 6th attack, not the Capitol riot. It's not the Capitol riot committee, it's the January 6th attack committee. So you can go right into Google today and still find people, even people who ought to know better, still calling it a riot. Uh, sometimes they will inexplicably pluralize it, writing and talking about the Capitol riots. There were no Capitol riots. There was one coordinated attack, extensively prepared, with nothing left to chance, all documented and laid out in cases in which defendants have already pleaded guilty to felony counts. So, a big part of this is how people are seemingly unable to learn new information. People's opinions get locked into place with information that they learn early on, and then it's hard for them to unlearn that information. Dan Abram, give you one example. I listen to the show on SiriusXM. To this day, on his show, he talks about the January 6th commission. He keeps using that word. He doesn't know what it means. We don't have a January 6th commission. We have a January 6th committee, right? The commission was shot down by Republicans early on. But Abrams, for some reason, inexplicably, still thinks of it as a January 6th commission. Although, understanding the difference between a commission... And a select committee is a distinction that you would think that Abrams would understand, right? I already made reference to the Senate Select Committee in Watergate. This is analogous to that. I'm sure that even Dan Abrams knows intellectually that, that it is a committee, not a commission. But, you know, somehow, early in the process, he thought of it as a commission. He still calls it a commission, um, you know, which for me just makes it very difficult for, you know, to really take anything... He has very definite opinions about all this, right? But he gets this one very basic fact wrong. It's hard to take someone seriously when they're still calling a commission, when it's clearly a House Select Committee, and the reasons why it's a select committee, as opposed to a commission, are important and significant and relevant. So if someone like Dan Abrams is still getting the basic facts about the investigation wrong, 
what can we expect of the public? They know even less. Uh, even those who haven't been flooding their own brains with disinformation, they've formed some basic idea that Trump told the mob that it was going to be wild, and then they went to the Capitol, and some people decided on a whim to attack police and occupy the Capitol. That's pretty much it. right? That's the public perception. And so the committee, in crafting its public hearings, are going to have to overcome this. They're going to have to move beyond that. But in this regard, they do have a secret weapon. New information not yet publicly available. The committee itself has been leak-proofed and has really only released the information that members of the committee have wanted to release for their own ends. I believe that the committee is going to break through these preconceptions and the apathy by beginning the hearings on June 9th with some bombshell information that will be unquestionable and also not publicly available at the current time. What that bombshell information is, I don't know. Uh, but if they pull that off on the first night, the hearings will become must-see TV. I mean, the most obvious thing would be to unmask the, the pipe bomber, but, you know, it could be anything. Now, you'll recall in Season 2, Episode 1, I talked about how I expected that we would see the committee strategically release information in advance of the public hearings in order to prime the pump of public opinion. And I think we've been seeing that steadily all spring. They've been continuing to do it to try to get the public interested again and to make sure that there's a good audience for June 9th. We as human beings are novelty-seeking creatures and people will watch boring courtroom testimony if they find the story compelling, as we're seeing in the latest civil liberty court case. In this segment, I'm going to discuss some of the potential ways in which the committee could use our nature as novelty-seeking creatures to get the public to tune in and shape public opinion. And at the very end, I'm going to review the publicly available information uh, from, uh, regarding the testimony of some of the witnesses that we know have been subpoenaed. But all in all, there have been over a thousand witnesses who've been interviewed, almost all of them voluntarily. So some of my points on what follows are going to be speculative, and, um, you know, it's not, it's my best guess, right? It's not a 100% indication that they're going to figure in the public hearings, but, you know, they are guesses. I'll try to point to the evidence in those instances and also refer you to the links in the show notes to some of the documents uh, and the news stories regarding the, these, this whole line of inquiry. Now, I want to thank the listeners who corresponded with me when I was floating trial balloons regarding this episode. One idea that came up in those conversations is the question of how the hearings will be organized. And I think it's a good question. Good question. You know, are they going to be chronological? Are they going to be thematic? Are they going to start with foot soldiers and work their way up? You know, I don't know. My guess is that it would be thematic, that they are going to uh, focus on different parts of the conspiracy, different parts of the attack, and also perhaps chronological within those themes. So if I were doing it, I'd begin with the coverage of the attack itself and then show documentary and testimonial evidence to show the public how the attack was organized and planned beginning shortly after the election, or possibly earlier, as early as September 2020. 
So here are some of the questions and themes that I expect are going to arise in the select committee hearings. I think the most significant stories are going to come uh, in the gaps, right? A lot of these are things that we haven't seen information released about. And that itself, in some sense, is curious. They are saving strategically uh, some of this information for the public hearings, and they're teasing it right now. And I will talk about the evidence why we, you know, that we have to believe that that is the case. So there are eight things that I would expect to see at the upcoming public hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack beginning on June 9th. The first regards the Insurrection Act. This is more speculative than some of the other things on this list, but the possibility that Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act comes up time and time again, from Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo Discovery Material to lots of chatter on Parler and other sites, to Michael Flynn's public and repeated calls for the military to intervene in the election. One of the several possible reasons why an attack on the Capitol would have been necessary, in addition to delaying certification, giving time for fake slates of electors to be put in place, and the various occupation and hostage scenarios, would have been to give Trump a pretext to invoke the Insurrection Act to seize control of the voting equipment with the military, to declare the election invalid, and to have the military then administer a new election, uh, basically the, the plan that is advocated by Michael Flynn and Phil Walter. So, you know, the Insurrection Act comes up, but yet, as far as we know, Trump never did invoke the Insurrection Act. But... Maybe he did. Uh, we don't know very much about what Trump was actually doing on the afternoon of January 6th. Is it possible that he attempted to invoke the Insurrection Act and was rebuffed? This would actually give some explanation as to what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were actually doing during this time. We know that Trump was very anxious to invoke the Insurrection Act in response to the George Floyd protests, after all. And he and his staff drew up a draft proclamation. Um, and what basically happened was that Mark Esper and General Milley basically told him no. You know, they, they talked him out of it. Uh, but there's a sense in which, you know, General Milley says, you're not invoking the Insurrection Act. You know, you, you might not be doing that. Uh, because, you know, then you've got a problem with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There's almost no version of the plot in which the Insurrection Act doesn't figure. We know that Trump was on the phone with members of Congress, but I also wonder if he was attempting to mobilize the military in some way on the afternoon of January 6th. The second thing I would expect to see is evidence of planning, preparation, and coordination. Now, this is a bit of old news for listeners to this show, but I expect it's actually going to figure in prominently in the committee hearings. Again, in part because the public hasn't been following these cases very closely, and they may not understand the scope of the conspiracy to keep Donald Trump in office. Much of this evidence would come from individual members of the mob. We know that the committee took time to interview people such as Stuart Rhodes or Elmer Rhodes, but they also interviewed various low-level parading defendants. There would be evidence, for example, regarding contacts between the event organizers and the people 
who bust attackers into DC. And some of this evidence may not actually even pertain to the actual attack, but also tie the attack in to other efforts to keep Trump in office at the expiration of his term. For example, in reporting by Kyle Cheney of, from Politico on November 4th, 2021, it was reported that one defendant met with the committee twice and, quote, described knowledge of contacts between GOP officials in a key state Trump lost and allies of the former president in the weeks leading up to the January 6th attack. Also, quote, Questions from investigators ranged from the defendant's knowledge of those who organized travel to Washington for the January 6th event, as well as details about the preparation of legal affidavits in support of Trump's false claims of voter fraud. End quote. Again, that's just from some ground-level member of the mob who's not identified uh, in the reporting from Politico. So we tend to focus on the subpoenas that are going to these central figures in the administration, the ones that are being ignored. I believe there's something like 16. Uh, we focus on the, the, you know, the contempt referrals, but all together, I think there are 16 subpoena recipients who are openly flouting uh, Congress at this point. Um, you know, and, and that's important and significant, and you know, the Department of Justice and Congress ought to act on it. But nonetheless, we should not forget that other people also know things. There have been over 1,000 witnesses interviewed by the committee, and many of them are less culpable than the people at the center of the plot, and so therefore less invested or uh, even capable of fighting the committee on, you know, I mean, basically they, they might have just received an information request and be like, you know what, I don't want to wait for a, a subpoena. I want to go in and clear this matter up because, you know, Unlike some other figures, perhaps, I'm not looking at jail time. Now, some of this may also implicate, you know, higher-level defendants. Long before he won the Republican nomination for the office of governor of Pennsylvania, I thought that Doug Mastriano might catch a charge for his involvement in January 6th. Now he's won his party's nomination. What happens if Doug Mastriano winds up facing serious federal charges? After all, let me refresh your memory, this is someone who used campaign funds to bus people from his home district to D.C. And I often wondered if he isn't actually part of the reason why Pennsylvania seems to be so overrepresented among January 6th defendants. Mastriano, of course, was also a fake Trump elector, and he took part in this massive fraud to defraud the United States government. So, you know, he is as involved as someone who's a, a state senator from Pennsylvania could possibly have been. We don't know exactly how many of the charged January 6th defendants from Pennsylvania actually came to D.C. on one of Mastriano's buses, but I bet that the number is zero. I even wonder if the witness described in the political story is actually from Pennsylvania, uh, or if there are other witnesses who've all already given testimony against him. So we tend to think of these, you know, maybe lower level or even parading defendants as not necessarily having information that might work against the several plotters. We don't know. We don't know. They may, in fact, implicate people such as Mastriano, who's a fake elector and also a, a kind of a, you know, a grassroots organizer improperly using campaign funds to bust people to D.C. to attack the Capitol on January 6th.
Third thing I expect to hear at the hearings are surprise witnesses. Now, once again, I can't even get a moment's respite from actual news. As I was writing the script for this episode, it was confirmed that Attorney General, former Attorney General, William Barr, agreed to, quote, tentatively give sworn testimony behind closed doors, end quote. According to reporting from NPR, William Barr met with Liz Cheney and members of the committee's investigative team at Barr's own home for two hours in the fall of 2021. Given the way that this is reported, it certainly would be a surprise if the committee not only actually had tape testimony, uh, but if he showed up in prime time. Nonetheless, you know, I think that the bar testimony is going to figure in at the public hearings. And, you know, maybe not that big a surprise, but it does point to the possibility that there are going to be other people who we might have thought might not testify, but who ultimately wind up giving testimony. Now, of course, William Barr. Is he going to give self-serving testimony? Yeah. You know, his interests at this point, though, also align somewhat with those of the committee. Because offering testimony against Trump is only going to make William Barr look better, right? Now, there have been over a thousand witnesses. Many of them have come in voluntarily without a subpoena. And Barr is one of them. So there are going to definitely be more than a few people from inside the Trump administration, like William Barr, highly placed people who are going to try to redeem themselves, right? William Barr is on this, uh, you know, this tour, this effort to try to redeem his name. Who knows? Maybe Mike Pence will put in an appearance. Um, you know, I'm sure that the fact that Trump had this mob that was paying for him to be hanged might rankle a little bit, right? So, it's especially curious to me that there are any number of people who had bullhorns and were acting as marshals at the attack, whose faces were visible as they uh, acted to move the mob to where they were supposed to be positioned in order to take up the Capitol. I've dealt with this before, this issue of functional subdivisions, evidence of pre-planning and preparation in the attack. Funnily enough, um, you know, the, the apologists for the Trumpist mob uh, point to this fact that there's somehow evidence that the, the mob was organized by the FBI, but it could be the case that some of these people have been charged under sealed indictments, right? So, again, the people who were doing this kind of work presumably had more connections to the central organizers of the plot than just random members of the mob or even perhaps your uh, random member of a paramilitary gang. So it's a question of whether or not the committee would actually have access to these sorts of people. Has the Department of Justice encouraged any of these kinds of defendants to cooperate with the committee? Uh, we will know soon enough. The fourth thing that I would expect might come out at the uh, public hearings and related to the last item is the possibility of secret linkages between the mob and the uh, central organizers and planners of the attack. So, one of the most closely guarded secrets in the investigation, both of the DOJ and the committee, is anything showing linkages uh, between the ravening mob and Trump and his, and his inner circle, right? The fact that there is a sealed indictment in the Wilson case might lead us to believe that there are sealed indictments in other cases. So, you know, again, on, on the 4th of May, uh, you know, they had to unseal that indictment, 
And, you know, why was that the case? Well, there was a redaction failure, uh, which I wound up talking about two episodes ago, episodes ago in the episode on the Vallejo Discovery material. But also because it, you know, it showed that Elmer Rhodes uh, had the phone number of an intermediary who had the ability to get Donald Trump on the phone with him. And what was the thing that he was asking that intermediary to do? Well, to uh, have Trump invoke the Insurrection Act and to deputize the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the other various paramilitary gangs to get weapons, to go back in the Boston Comfort Inn and get their weapons and go back for some kind of armed standoff, right? Because, you know, it's not an Oath Keepers thing unless there's an armed standoff with federal officers. But again, this raises all kinds of questions about the possibility of whether or not there are other sealed indictments that show secret linkages and whether or not the committee actually even has access to these persons, right? We know the government is, is really taking care to keep the information that most directly links the attack on the Capitol to the Trump administration a very closely held secret. Now, the Trump administration, the plotters, have always relied on the fiction that they have plausible deniability. But there are a myriad of ways that the committee could use to demonstrate direct linkages between the mob and the Trump administration. So, you know, there may be people who've been long identified whose information has been given to the FBI months ago. And yet, there's no public information available on that arrest. Wilson fit that category, by the way. So how many of these people have actually been charged in sealed indictments and may be prepared to give evidence? How many of them, in fact, may have given evidence? Would the committee have access to similarly situated persons? Elmer Rhodes was testifying to the committee while being detained. So it's not entirely inconceivable that other, as yet unnamed defendants who are out on bond, might also give testimony to the committee. Uh, federal charges are a powerful incentive, and, you know, it may be the case that they want to be demonstrating that they are co cooperating with the government, both in terms of the DOJ and the prosecutions, and also the committee itself. Which raises another issue, you know, um, that's related here, of course, to the idea that perhaps the Department of Justice is going to try to tamp down the committee hearings so that it doesn't endanger the possibility of ongoing prosecutions. I don't think they're going to do that. There's, there's been no signs or signals that the Department of Justice uh, is so inclined. If anything, uh, the Department of Justice appears to be very happy to let the, the House Select Committee uh, investigate the, the coup planners and the central plotters and deal mainly with the foot soldiers while they have these grand juries uh, handle you know, the, the parts of the what I have posited to be a two-track investigation or multiple-track investigation against these central plant planners. I mean, we won't know if that were to happen, but it doesn't appear that there is a conflict between uh, the public hearings and the prosecution of potential criminal defendants. All right, fifth thing that you might expect from the upcoming public hearings, evidence of financial crimes. I know I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Everything that Trump has ever done involves some kind of financial crime, and I'm sure that January 6th was no exception. One of the subpoena recipients was Salesforce, a firm that the RNC used to fundraise off the back of Donald Trump's election loss. You know, part of, partly because um, 
he was they were using this mailing list that they had to send disinformation out to people regarding the 2020 election. So, in other words, they were making fake claims of voter fraud and using that as a fundraising appeal, which, you know, not an attorney, but if they did that knowingly, that's fraud, right? That's potentially mail fraud. That is definitely covered by the federal government. So, um, you know, that could be a financial crime. There's also the question of appearance fees at the various speakers at the rally, which is one of the areas that was included in the subpoena for Andy Sarabian, or, yeah, Sarabian. Um, there are questions surrounding the financing that was provided by Julie Jenkins Fancelli, who's the Florida heiress whose uh, family money derives from the public's supermarket chain. Fancelli gave $150,000 to the Rule of Law Defense Fund for robocalls to get people to come to the rally on January 6th. She also gave $300,000 to Women for America First, of course, the organization in charge of the rally at the Ellipse, and an additional $200,000 to the Florida State Chapter of Tea Party Express, another organization integrally involved in the events of January 6th. So we don't know at this point anything, really, about potential financial crimes. This is something the committee hasn't really been talking about publicly. I think they're going to do it at the committee hearings. We don't know the overall budget. We don't know what the money was spent on or even the identities of all the donors. Also, there is the possibility that there are ongoing uh, financial crimes. The grift involving January 6th is continuing. There are various nonprofits that have been involved in raising money for the criminals who attacked the Capitol, including an outfit called Patriot Freedom Fund, which has been promoted by none other than Steve Bannon. According to a reporting from NPR, uh, Patriot Freedom Fund, at least when it began, included three members of the same family as trustees, which is really not the preferred way to operate a nonprofit. Uh, apparently, though, they have branched out. They, they've gotten rid of two of those trustees, uh, and they now have three. I'll go through them. Now, the founder of the group is one Cynthia Hughes, who's appeared on Steve Bannon's podcast uh, to raise money. And um, this is someone who's had a number of legal issues related to their financial problems. So it's a little bit strange to see them founding a nonprofit and serving as a trustee. At, again, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization. Another trustee is Rachel Sibyl, who is formerly a communications director at the Office of Management and Budget under Trump. So you've got someone directly from the Trump administration in charge of this organization that is uh, supposedly raising money for the criminal defense of the violent mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th and for the support of their families. The third trustee is Ed Martin. Ed Martin is the man who succeeded Phyllis Schlafly as president of her group, Eagle Forum. Coincidentally, Ed Martin is also the recipient of a subpoena from the Select Committee, which has sought his testimony related to January 6th, because he's a co-founder of Stop the Steal. So, let's review here. You've got Stop the Steal, which is a target in the largest criminal investigation in American history, and one of its officers, uh, one, somebody who claims to be a co-founder, has received a subpoena from a House committee investigating the crime of January 6th, 
And that same officer is serving as a trustee for a tax-exempt nonprofit that, among other things, is raising money to help the legal defense of defendants charged in the largest crime in American history? And then you have Steve Bannon, who had to acknowledge guilt for grifting off the Trump plan to build a wall on the southern border of the United States, who's also involved in promoting this group. And one of the other trustees is also a former Trump official. And a third is someone who has a long history of financial issues. Something tells me that the Patriot Freedom Fund is not going to be able to stand up to even a cursory examination uh, by the House Select Committee. You know, I'll, I haven't seen any reporting on this. I don't know if I'm breaking the story here. I haven't seen anything regarding the connection, especially between Ed Martin and this group. Uh, but, you know, it took me about 20 minutes to find this little closed loop, uh, this little ecosystem of grifting. So I can't imagine what an experienced financial crime investigator would be able to find if they were to look at the books of Patriot Freedom Fund. The sixth thing that I expect to find with regard to the public hearings is what I'm calling buyer's remorse. Now, one of the things I think the committee might do is to show videos of capital attackers expressing their regret for ever even having followed Trump. Now, this isn't really a substantive thing. This isn't, you know, add anything to the case that they're building. But I think it's going to be an important part of the overall messaging. In just about every context, eventually, all of these defendants wind up crying. So hopefully that was clear, right? So, I mean, that's Danny Rodriguez squirting some out during his videotaped confession uh, regarding his attack on Officer Fanoon. Uh, but we see this over and over again, right? Uh, you see Jeffrey McKellop, uh, you know, the, who stabbed a Capitol Police, uh, sorry, a uh, Metropolitan Police officer in the face with a flagpole, permanently scarring him, allegedly. You know, crying in court and acting out. You can hear Brian Ulrich gently sobbing as he pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy. A lot of these people actually have buyer's remorse. They have expressed regret, and they've gotten emotional doing it. And I think that this emotional component is perhaps as important as you know, sort of the legal argument. There's been all this nonsense going around about Ray Epps and the Fed's erection, but there's much less focus on the attackers themselves. And again, many of them are, are literally squirting some out uh, while they're expressing buyer's remorse regarding Trump. You know, Trump promised that he was going to march with them to the Capitol. They just scoggered off, right, and let Alex Jones stand in for him. So they all cry eventually. Um, I have no doubt that we will going to hear again at some point from the officers who are attacked by the mob. But I think that there's uh, really a, a potential 
for emotionally compelling testimony from the mob itself. There are probably millions of MAGA diehards out there who really just have FOMO. They, they wish they'd been there on January 6th to get their licks in. And I think it would be compelling to put these actual MAGA people on television crying now that they've been charged with assault on a federal officer or seditious conspiracy or some other charge, uh, you know, expressing regret and remorse. That would be compelling and make for good television, even if it's not something that, you know, could stand up in court. The seventh thing that I expect to see at the public hearings would be evidence of resistance. Uh, part of the late-breaking news here, of course, uh, as I was writing the script, you know, the news again that Bill Barr is going to testify, right? So he's a surprise witness, but he's going to paint a story of himself somehow as a resistor. Um, he's going to say that he's a hero for having left the Trump administration on December 23rd, 2020. But nonetheless, there are probably many actual stories of resistance to the coup from inside the government. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example, made public their opposition to using the military to intervene in elections just a couple of days before the attack. Similarly, there's the well-known story from the final days of the Trump administration when White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and every assistant attorney general in the Justice Department threatened to resign if Trump followed through with his scheme to replace acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen with Jeffrey Clark. Now, there are a lot of people who were willing to engage in utterly reprehensible conduct in connection with the Trumpist coup. But there were also people who resisted, from top career people at various agencies to Trump's own political appointees. I think that these people will make very compelling witnesses. Uh, one listener suggested Mark Short, for example, right? Trump's chief of staff, who we'll get to in a moment. Um, he testified at length before the committee, and he has the air of a man who's very much disgusted by a president who incited a mob to kill his boss. So we focus on these, these targets of the investigation. I do think that there are going to be people who knew what was up, realized at some point that it was uh, illegal and unconstitutional, and resisted it, and they will be in a position to testify to that uh, in front of the January 6th committee, either in recorded testimony or perhaps even live testimony. Finally, the eighth and final thing that I expect from these public hearings beginning on June 9th would be new video and photographic evidence. There are cameras everywhere in the Capitol. Although we've learned that some of these cameras don't work, nonetheless, this was the most extensively documented crime scene in U.S. history. No, world history. And who owns all that video? Congress. Congress has all the video evidence, but they've kept it very close to their chest. So the committee has access to all that. And that certainly includes footage not just from January 6th, but also in the run-up to January 6th and the aftermath of January 6th. Remember, the seditionist traders thought they were going to win, and they may not have taken precautions regarding their movements and activities, despite the fact that they certainly knew about the existence of these cameras. As we've seen throughout this process, video evidence is extremely compelling, and we don't know what the committee has, especially when it comes to the conduct of members of Congress. So there's going to be evidence 
relevant to the behavior of members who, and you know who they are, what I like to call the Sedition Caucus. What kinds of behavior were they engaged in before and during and after January 6th? So just yesterday it came out that Representative Barry Loudermilk of Georgia led tours on January 5th, 2021, despite the fact that he had given the assurance that no one, no Republican member, no members generally, had given what he called reconnaissance tours in the run-up to January 6th. Apparently, the committee didn't say this in the information request letter, but apparently there's evidence indicating that no, no, in fact, uh, Mr. Lauderbilt did indeed give uh, a tour. Now, he's claiming at this point that, well, it was a family, it was constituents, um, but, you know, it's a short uh, sidestep and dodge from that to, well, okay, maybe they weren't a fan, maybe they were, you know, different people, maybe it was the Oath Keepers, maybe it was the Proud Boys, maybe these are, in fact, people who we know attacked cops on January 6th, but, you know, there, there was nothing suspicious about that. Again, he, he lied. He lied to other members of Congress in his capacity as a sitting member of, I believe it was the House Administration Oversight Committee, uh, one of the committees that actually has oversight with regard to this. All the Republican committee members sat down and said, did we find, you know, they reviewed the video evidence and they said, well, did, did they want to violate? No, there were no tours. Um, so it raises the question, right? If Loudermilk was given tours and that's on video, who else is on video? Uh, the committee has known about this since the very start. Loudermilk was lying. I don't even have to say allegedly here. Loudermilk lied. He said there were no tours. He himself gave a tour during the COVID epidemic at a time when no one was supposed to be given tours. Um, and what is the committee issuing this? Again, as go back to the first episode of the season, they are priming the pump. They issued it three weeks before public hearings begin. So this is going to be part of the drip, drip, drip. They're going to make those members sweat it out. The Sedition Caucus was up to no good, and a lot of this is on videotape, and it's all going to start coming out, and I am here for it. So, who else? What are the candidates? Who else led tours? How about Lauren Boebert, right? Representative Boebert was accused of giving reconnaissance tours, and there's photographic evidence that uh, she gave a tour on Saturday, December 12th, before she was even sworn in. It was on, you know, a Saturday. And it's just absolutely bizarre. And yet there are photos uh, from that tour. Also, Representative Steve Cohen said that uh, Boebert gave a tour to a large group sometime between January 3rd and January 6th. Boebert denies this, but, you know, I guess we'll never know. I guess we don't know who to believe. If only there was some way to find out. So, we'll... Well, I guess we'll just have to turn to the video evidence and see, you know. And again, there are all these people who think, well, we would have known if this had happened. No, we wouldn't. They're holding on to it. They are holding on to the best stuff. Nobody had any suspicion until yesterday that Barry Loudermilk was given uh, tours to people in advance of January 6th. So all the people are saying, we would know. No, you wouldn't know. They have been tightly controlling information, and they are strategically releasing this information in the run-up to the public hearings on, on June 9th, because they are going to blow the roof 
off the house as Representative Jamie Raskin has represented. So, also in connection with this, by the way, just yesterday, yet again, another item of news. Um, it's been reported that the National Archives has handed over the photographs taken by the official White House photographer on January 6th. Now, this evidence could potentially resolve some of the unanswered questions uh, about what Trump himself was doing during the unaccounted for gap in time on January 6th. But again, I don't expect that this is going to be the last photographic or video evidence that is going to be offered up. And I think that video evidence, it works in court. It also works in the court of public opinion. There are public statements, and then there's your own actual behavior on video. And this is going to, you know, presumably sway some swing voters in some swing states and in some swing districts. Because there, I suspect that there's going to be some people who are caught up uh, and that their lies are going to be revealed on national television. And once they do that, they do that now on day one, it's going to be must-see TV. You're going to get the same kind of ratings that you had for the Watergate hearings back uh, in, you know, May, June, 1973. You're going to have that again. History is going to repeat itself or at least run. And now, finally like to talk about the subpoenas that have been issued by the January 6th committee. Now, again, over a thousand people have testified. The vast majority of them have done so voluntarily, either in response to information requests from the committee, or uh, they've come forward because they've had something to volunteer. And we can all speculate about, you know, who's in what category, right? Certainly, I would think that some of the people who resisted the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election results might be in that latter category. But for the moment, we're just going to focus on the people who received subpoenas. We know very little about the information that has been submitted by people who have voluntarily complied. And we also know that some of the people who have testified voluntarily requested subpoenas, like Dustin Stockton, for example. But here I'm just going to review not all the subpoenas, right, not including the 16 uh, people in Trump's circle who are uh, resisting these efforts, but just on the ones who we know something about, according to published press reports, uh, what they said or even you know how long they went in for. And I think the overall picture is one that looks very good for the, the public hearings, especially if they have videotaped testimony of this, you know, that they can put up on national TV, again, to really move the needle on public opinion. And I know that, you know, a lot of the people who are targets of the committee and the Department of Justice may not be testifying, right? And they have the right to invoke the Fifth Amendment anyway. But uh, it's worth noting that criminal defendants don't testify all the time and yet nonetheless wind up getting convicted. So here we will just review, again, some of this testimony. Uh, and, you know, these are just the ones for which I could find published press accounts. I, I basically went through and, uh, you know, found all of the bits of testimony where I could find any information uh, in the universe of about 100 subpoenas uh, that concerned what was testified to or how long uh, the testimony lasted. 
So we'll start with Mark Meadows, right? The former White House Chief of Staff. Mark Meadows has partly complied. They have partly gotten, they have gotten some of his materials. And some of that material, of course, to include text messages, has already proved very valuable to the committee. Again, this is someone who's now subject to a contempt referral that the Department of Justice has yet to act upon. Nonetheless, Mark Meadows has offered information that has already proven fruitful to the committee's work. And my suspicion is that some of the best material that Mark Meadows has supplied is being retained and saved for the public hearings. Dan Scavino. Uh, Dan Scavino is a subject to a contempt referral. Of course, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications, intimately involved uh, in the effort to overturn the 2020 election results, uh, subject to a contempt referral. Kash Patel. Kashet Patel, former Defense Department official, has complied. He has complied and testified uh, in front of the January 6th committee. Steve Bannon, former Trump advisor, not an advisor or in any official capacity during the January 6th and the events leading up to January 6th, which is why the DOJ, I think, accepted the contempt referral. Uh, far fewer legal issues than there are involving, let's say, a member of Congress or someone who's uh, acting in an official capacity. Uh, has been referred for contempt for non-compliance. He has a trial jet date set for July 18th in front of Trump-appointed judge Carl Nichols for contempt of Congress. Uh, Bannon's going to make an executive privilege claim. Good luck for that, considering that uh, the current administration is not upholding that claim, and he was not in any official capacity uh, at the time of the January 6th insurrection. Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani has taken a tactic of delay, delay, delay. Uh, he had an appearance scheduled for early May. He canceled that. So hopefully the committee, you know, is sick of his nonsense and will make a contempt referral for him as well. Kimberly Gilfoyle, Gavin Newsom's ex-wife, uh, has testified for nine hours in front of the January 6th committee. And the committee also has her phone records. She is someone who is not necessarily noted, I, I believe, for, for her restraint. So uh, there could be, you know, the possibility that they obtained useful information from her. Donald Trump Jr. Donald Trump Jr., uh, Trump's namesake, met with the committee voluntarily. And he had texted Mark Meadows, quote, We need an oval address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. It's not known how much contact Donald Trump Jr. had with his father on January 6th. Nonetheless, he has testified and is, you know, I wouldn't think particularly the kind of person who's going to be able to, uh, you know, testify in such a way that he's going to be able to all put his best foot forward. In other words, I don't think he's clever enough to, you know, fool the experienced team that is heading up the investigation. Um, Ivanka Trump. Ivanka Trump also testified voluntarily, uh, purportedly mainly about a phone call between Trump and Pence on the morning of January 6th. 
Her husband, Jared Kushner, has also testified voluntarily. Now, Kushner was traveling on January 6th, so it's not really known what the subject of his testimony was. Nonetheless, voluntarily went and complied with the information request from the January 6th committee. Hannah Salem of Salem Strategies, LLC, who was listed on the permit paperwork for January 6th rally as a operations manager for logistics and communications, has complied with a document request. So they have the documents relating to uh, the rally from Hannah Salem. Uh, may have also testified in prison. I'm not sure on that. Lyndon Brentnall from RMS Protective Services, who's listed on the permit paperwork for the January 6th rally at the Ellipse as the on-site supervisor, has also complied with the document request. Katrina Pearson, who's a former Trump campaign official and longtime Trump associate and who helped organize the rallies on January 5th and 6th, is also um, has some of Pearson's text messages. Now, reportedly, uh, has she's testified and did not take the Fifth Amendment. So hopefully she offered full and truthful testimony regarding the, you know, what happened in the lead up uh, to the insurrection, the insurrection itself. Ali Alexander, organizer of the Stop the Steal rally, is at this point a known target of the grand jury. Even though, by the way, he says that he is not a target, interestingly enough, um, but they, they are certainly investigating him. Um, he's met with the committee last December, and he testified for hours. So, you know, it's kind of, I don't know. He says he's not a target, but on the other hand, he says, well, yes, there is a grand jury that's interested in me. Not quite sure uh, what that means. Uh, he claims that he is cooperating with the Justice Department and has also handed over documents to the committee. So, you know, I'm hoping Ali Alexander opts to try to save his own skin or has already done so. Nathan Martin. Nathan Martin is a Shelby County, Ohio councilman who appears on the permit applications for the Stop the Steel rally and who's also met with the committee. Dustin Stockton, who I've mentioned here many times before, uh, who ran afoul of the law in a scam operation to privately fund the Trump wall in coordination with Steve Bannon, uh, an operation for which, you know, Bannon got a pardon and Stockton didn't, and he's angry and bitter. He spoke with the committee for eight hours last December. And for my money, he is an absolute favorite to be someone who's provided useful testimony before the committee. Now, Amy Kramer, uh, the lead organizer for the Stop City Rally, denies that Stockton played any role in organizing the rally, but um, I'm not sure that that's accurate. Stockton reportedly told Mark Meadows that he was concerned for security at the rally. Uh, so, you know, I think that shows some level of involvement. Um, I th it could be just a level of different understandings about what being involved means. Um, Kramer doesn't think of him as taking part in organizing the rally, but I think he may have take, uh, made travel and accommodation arrangements for various attendees and may have also coordinated uh, on the financial side in connection with that and some other things. So uh, I have no doubt 
that he was involved in some capacity. And, you know, you don't go there with a, that, that thick binder and book full of information and testify for eight hours and have nothing to say. Jennifer Lawrence, who is uh, Stockton's fiance and also a key player in the Stop the Steel movement, um, also helped to organize a series of rallies leading up to the uh, Stop the Steel rally on January 6th, has also complied with the committee and testified. Uh, of course, not to be confused with the other Jennifer Lawrence, right? Taylor Budovich, a Trump public relations operative, uh, sought to promote attendance at the rally and uh, was working as a communications director for the Save America PAC. Now, according to documents filed in a civil suit against the committee, Budovich supplied 1,700 pages of documents to the committee and testified for four hours. According to the lawsuit, quote, for months, Mr. Budovich has consistently operated with the select, cooperated with the select committee in good faith. This includes Mr. Budovich providing documents and appearing for his deposition over his objections to cooperate with the committee. Uh, he also supplied, quote, documents sufficient to identify all account transactions for the time period December 19th, 2020 to January 21st, 31st, excuse me, uh, 2021, in connection with the ellipse rally. So Budovich has handed over a lot of documents and they've got, again, in connection with the you know, possibility of financial crimes, uh, a lot of the financial information from him. Roger Stone, uh, of course, you're all familiar with Roger Stone, the Nixonian era uh, rat fucker and uh, 80s era lobbyist, uh, spoke to the committee for 90 minutes last December and reportedly invoked the Fifth Amendment. No surprise there. Uh, he is someone who, you know, I know a lot of people have speculated might be cooperating. Uh, to my money, it's on brand for him not to do that. I don't know that he has a lot to lose. He's uh, got expensive habits. And um, this is, you know, this is kind of what he does, right? He is, you know, basically the line between organized crime and um, politics. That's that's Roger Stone, right? So, you know, you basically, if you're running your political life like a mob organization, this is the guy you bring in. I don't think he's going to talk or squawk. Alex Jones, Alex Jones, the InfoWars host and uh, documented slanderer and liar, testified uh, according to his own account and evoked the Fifth Amendment over a hundred times. The committee also has text messages between Alex Jones and Caroline Wren. So according to reporting from the New York Times in late April, Jones is reportedly asking for immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony. Remember, Jones's work, you know, was a stand-in for Trump uh, from the, the march from the ellipse to the Capitol and is intimately involved, intimately involved in the planning of the rally and the funding for the rally, intimately involved in taking part in it. Uh, you had Owen Schroyer, of course, who was charged in it. Uh, Jones was taking part in the planning for the the, the dry runs, the practice run rallies in uh, the fall and early winter of 2020. Um, so, you know, he wants immunity. I, you know, I would think they would have to take a look at what he has. But, you know, 
I mean, he's got his own uh, legal issues with regard to civil suits. So, you know, maybe why not? Why not give Alex Jones immunity? Uh, no, no, throw him in the federal penitentiary. <laughs> I have to think about that. Jeffrey Clark. Jeffrey Clark, of course, the former uh, Department of Justice Assistant Attorney General for the Environment and Natural Resources Devel Division. Shouldn't be involved in any of this, but nonetheless is. Met with the committee in February uh, 2022 and took the Fifth Amendment more than 100 times over the course of an hour and 40 minutes. So, wow, right? I mean, this is someone who's an attorney, uh, former uh, assistant attorney general of the United States, winds up taking the Fifth Amendment in front of a congressional committee. A bold move. I would be interested to watch that video. Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, former uh, disgraced, Trump National Security Advisor, testified to the committee in March. Flynn took the Fifth Amendment, no surprise, because he's guilty. Michael Flynn, among other things, called for Trump to invoke martial law on Newsmax and consistently, again, uh, kept talking about the Insurrection Act. So, um, taking the Fifth Amendment and, you know, trying to involve... The, uh, the, the military in elections, and having a brother who was involved in stonewalling the uh, D.C. National Guard, you know, Flynn, he's a target, obviously, and uh, someone who, again, you know, taking the Fifth Amendment. So maybe not a lot of useful testimony from him, but, you know, there are there is a possibility that he could be recalled to service and court-martialed. So, you know, there might be some leverage with regard to Flynn, even though he appears to be uh, a, a real zealot, even though he sometimes, like, modifies his grifting in, in odd ways uh, and very much, you know, he's got this quasi-cult-like aspect going to his organization now. Just a very strange and, in some ways, dangerous figure. Nicholas Luna, who's Trump's body man, testified before the January 6th committee in March of 2022. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, testified before the committee and he gave, he gave information that subsequently led to the successful request for testimony from Ivanka Trump. Kaylee McEnany, former White House Press Secretary, made a virtual appearance before the committee, which Benny Thompson said lasted, quote, all day. McEnany reportedly had access to Trump on the afternoon of January 6th and visited him several times. So is in a position to know perhaps more about uh, what was actually happening uh, during the, the ongoing attack, what Trump was actually doing uh, when he was sequestered and on the phone with Congress and perhaps other persons. Stephen Miller, Trump senior advisor, testified to the committee on April 14th for over eight hours. Cassidy Hutchinson, special assistant to the president for legislative affairs, met with the committee in February and March of 2022. Some of her testimony is actually known because it's cited in a motion regarding Mark Meadows' efforts to fight the committee. She testified that Meadows knew about the possibility of violence on January 6th. Quote, I just remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying that we had intel reports 
saying there could potentially be violence on the 6th. And Mr. Meadows said, all right, let's talk about it. End quote. Mark Short, who I mentioned earlier and listeners suggested might be a surprise witness, I agree. Mike Pence's chief of staff, Short supplied documents to the committee and testified in a session in January that was described as lengthy. Short was present for a meeting on January 4th for the now infamous meeting with Trump and John Eastman, at which they pressured the vice president to try to overturn the election, election results through his unconstitutional act of fiat. Judd Deere, Trump's deputy White House press secretary, met for seven hours with the committee, testifying on March 3rd, 2022. Peter Navarro, Trump's trade advisor, referred for contempt of Congress. Elmer Stewart Rhodes, president of the Oath Keepers, testified remotely from jail regarding the January 6th attack. That would be interesting to see. You know, maybe he talked about that phone call to this intermediary. Who knows? Uh, you know, maybe, I mean, I, again, if he's offering them useful testimony, um, you know, maybe he's willing to plead to seditious conspiracy. I mean, looking at jail potentially for the rest of your life, not a great thing. And, you know, uh, Rhodes is someone who I think um, is very ideologically motivated, but nonetheless, reality is reality. David Schaefer, chairman of the Georgia Republican Party and also someone who's been involved in lawsuits that sought to overturn the election results in Georgia, testified about all this on December 14th. Uh, sorry, about what they were, he was doing on December 14th to appoint a fraudulent slate of electors in Georgia. Schaefer and other fake electors met in secret to anoint themselves as a fake slate of electors in an effort to defraud the United States. Now, I think that there may be other fake electors who have already also met with the committee. Uh, what's interesting about the, the Georgia case is that normally when the uh, electors are selected, it's done in public. This is known, actually, there's, there was reporting on this that showed that they basically hid. They hid, they did it in secret. To my mind, that shows cognizance of the fact that they're up to something naughty, they were perpetrating an audiness uh, and, again, involves them in a fraudulent scheme to deprive the government of the United States uh, of a thing of value, the presidency of the United States. So, uh, you know, possibly, I mean, that's, that's concerning. So good to get information from him and possibly other fake electors as well. Salesforce LLC, who I already mentioned, Salesforce LLC is a vendor that was used by Trump and the RNC to target people with election disinformation. Now, Salesforce had originally sought to fight the subpoena, but they reversed that decision and decided to comply. Quote, all performance metrics and analytics related to email campaigns by or on behalf of Donald Trump for President Incorporated, the Republican National Committee, or the Trump Make America Great Again Committee for the period between November 3rd, 2020, and January 6th, 2021. So the committee has all that information, all the information regarding their efforts to, you know, use, basically, uh, you know, commit fraud, right? To commit wire fraud, to lie to people about election fraud and get them to uh, attack 
Congress. So the, the, the subpoena itself also covered uh, records related to, quote, login sessions by individuals associated with the Trump campaign or the RNC into Salesforce's marketing cloud platform, including all related metadata. That is going to be a treasure trove. So they're going to get uh, forensic computing guys in there uh, and gals, and they're going to look at this data, and they're going to, you know, hopefully figure some stuff out. So those are all the, uh, you know, again, I didn't list the ones that we don't know anything about, all the publicly available uh, press reporting, uh, all the things that have appeared in court documents relevant to this. That's what we know. That's just what we've known. And, you know, over 90,000 documents, over a thousand witnesses. They're going to have all this great video evidence. They're going to have all this testimony. It's an embarrassment of riches. And as we saw at, at the impeachment, the first impeachment, um, well, and the second impeachment, you know, they're really good at presenting this documentary video evidence that I think is going to be compelling. So that's why this is taking time. And it's going to be time for uh, not just, you know, the ends of justice, but also to good electoral effect. It, I do not think it is happenstance that, you know, this is roughly the same time frame uh, before the midterm election, you know, uh, or, well, same time time of year, but that we had the Watergate hearings, right? I mean, 73 and 2020 is a bit different. You know, 73 wasn't an election year. Uh, but nonetheless, the needle on public opinion moves the most in the summer before an election. So we could see, you know, possibly, you know, some real democratic gains. Uh, more importantly, sealing that in will help to solidify the efforts to make the perpetrators of the Trumpist coup on January 6th face justice. Thank you so much. Uh, please also, if you have a, a moment, uh, please rate the show on the podcatcher of your choice. If you have any questions or comments, please do follow the show on Twitter at Cap Insurrupt. And uh, I look forward to doing this with you again next time. Bye.